Hello, good morning and good afternoon wherever you are. This is the 212 podcast. We started the podcast to try and put a positive spin on how great the work that the events and art industry brings to the table. And we'll be speaking to people across multiple sectors of the industry. Uh, the guest today is known for being a part of the world-renowned and well pioneers in music, Mumford & Sons. Uh, the enviable title of not only having that to his name, he is also a CEO and owner of the Venue Group, operating in multiple countries. Please welcome to the podcast at, with deafening claps, uh, Ben Lovett. How are you and where are you at the moment, Ben? I'm being deafened. I can't, can't hear myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm doing all right, thanks. I'm, uh, I'm in New York at the moment. Perfect. Um, now, Venue Group, uh, tell us about that. How, how did you get into that and what's, what's the kind of premise behind it? Uh, well, you know, it's been an interesting journey. I've been trying to maintain throughout uh, really my, my entire adult life a real job. Even when Mumford & Sons took off, um, I didn't want it to become a job. Um, I kind of had this um, teenage boy view of what it was like being in a band. And, and I, was, I had this theory that if I could maintain a day job, then the band could keep being a hobby. Uh, which I which I have managed to do, and and for at least um, principally in the first uh, handful of years, uh, I was a, a co-founder of a business called Communion, uh, and Communion um, we're a concert promoter, uh, event producer, and and we're a record label and publishing company, and and, and that's still going to today. We had had an amazing journey um, with that business, and in two thousand and ten. So that, so that started in 2006, I think it was. 2010, I, I moved to the States. I wanted to try and uh, bring communion as a business and also the values of that business, which was all about artist development and, and discovery, um, sticking with artists in a very like traditionally indie way to the US. Um, it actually had some of its, I guess, roots in a way from the Bill Graham kind of school. And... Um, Anyway, got into got into American promoting, and and in the process of doing that, learned that you know a lot of the a lot of the venues across the states are kind of either officially or unofficially closed rooms, which you know basically means that the the, the venues are tied to one exclusive promoter, so you can't really go into the rooms as a promoter with an artist that you're passionate about. The artist has to choose by between working with the the promoter that they might want to work with versus playing the room that they want to play. And, and I, you know, have got a bit of a, that seems that that doesn't seem right to me. So I, I took a bit of a uh, hard look at what was going on in the venue space in 2015, alongside my brother and my dad, uh, who, who come from completely different backgrounds. We ended up launching our, or, or deciding to launch our first venue as a, as a family business and, and, um, thought London was the right place to do that, given um, that was the city we knew the best. And um, off we went, found a, found a site, got, got locked in on, on the arches uh, that ended up becoming Omira, built it out, launched that venue and had a lot of fun with it. And it was, it was, it was successful and, and taught us a thing or two about what it, what it takes to run a music venue. Had you had any yeah. kind of um, experience of that before? I guess you'd kind of, with Mumford and & Sons and touring, you'd probably seen um, people uh, running venues uh, and looking after them. How was that being on the opposite side? 
Yeah, I've t- well, I kind of dipped in and around it throughout in like different ways in my whole life. Definitely Three Months and Sons respect is um, the, the, the people behind the scenes in a, in a, in a big way. Um, but I was also, like I was saying, kind of simultaneously promoting shows, producing shows, and, and actually had done um, a few years where I was helping on various elements of, of venue management, whether it was, um, you know, booking the venue or uh, even even down to sort of the sales and marketing branding stuff for some of the venues like the uh, King's Theatre in Brooklyn, I'd been involved in um, getting relaunching that, which was a fun process. So I was I was kind of aware of the various components, but the bit that I was a bit kind of, I guess, blinkered on was really the, um, the bar component, you know, the food and beverage component. Mm. And that wasn't something I'd really been exposed to. I, I kind of understood the process from uh, inception of an idea of a gig through to delivering a gig and then the settlement. I could do all of that, but no, I didn't really understand bars. And, and that, you know, I mentioned my, my family and that, that was what the key thing was with teaming up with my brother because he had, he's six years older than me and he had uh, spent his career uh, luckily enough in food and beverage so he had gone out of he, he he had trained as an accountant but then didn't want to be kind of a um, you know accountant in a suit he wanted to use that knowledge to apply it to the thing that he loved the most which was hospitality and he ended up going into Maxwell's which was a big group in London that have all sorts of places that at the time I think it's Cafe de Paris and Roadhouse and a ton of um, small clubs and stuff like that in central London and then he ended up at Soho House and at Soho House Group, um, he went on to become um, the finance director for North America for that, for that business. And he, and he really understands what it takes to, to deliver a successful food and beverage program. And then, and then we kind of ended up in like a one plus one equals three scenario. And that, that doesn't mean we had like solved everything. It took, it took a ton of people um, Phil Renner and George Sewell and and various really key bits that were still gaps but you know I'm kind of I'm in awe of the venue side of the whole entertainment business I think the venues are really where it all happens that's like the that's the playground of playground of the industry um and and you know so I want to I think we're doing a good job with what we're doing right now but I certainly want to continue for the for the years you know that I, I hopefully have ahead of me to to just get venues better and better and doing a better job by them and how and how difficult is that at the moment I guess with with business currently it, there must be some real ups and downs and working within different countries and working with different restrictions how how is that working for you at the moment well it's just it's just downs and downs at the moment I mean there's not I'm a glass half full person you know, we haven't put a show on since March in any shape or form. So no, this year has been brutal. I think what I'm talking about is like, uh, if I if I consider where we had got to by 2019, top of 2020, and I consider picking that up again on the other side of this mess, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. You know, what I'm doing at the moment, kind of core day to day is is just trying to figure out how do we get to have another shot or how do we get out the other side of this mess 
and I can't begin to explain the number of hours I've sat through calls, whether it's speaking you know, on behalf of the industry to various government officials, speaking between promoters and, and event producers and other venue owners, trying to figure out solutions. And at the end of the day, despite the best will in the world and all of the efforts that have been made, my, my bottom line is that we either need to live with it or we need to put it to bed, which means, uh, you know, vaccination and, um, and patience for, for all of that to sink in. So, you know, I don't really buy into trying to find a way to have venues come back with everyone sanitized and wearing hazmat suits and that, 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 that doesn't really, and it's a bit of an unpopular opinion. I get, I, I do understand that because I think the best thing to say is that you'll do whatever it takes to find a way for musicians to get back on that stage, fans to get in the room and people get back to work. But I don't, I'm not quite, I actually believe that that could do more harm than good for the industry because the industry is not a sanitized industry. You know, it's all about screaming your heart out and sweating next to a stranger. And, you know, like this stuff is not to be, it won't work in kind of a, yeah, like a clinical way. Through the season, we'll speak to various people. You know, we've got people in Japan, Iceland, and I'm sure that they'll be kind of speaking to the same um, same issues, finding it hard to kind of get back to some normality, you know, especially with events and venues and music specifically. It's really hard because you kind of do need the backing and you do need the people there. You can't kind of do it without it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's mad. Like, I've sort of, the, the more you, you tug at the thread the more you realize just how long it is in terms of the extent of affected derivative industries. And it is so huge. And I think, you know, people have been banging this drum for a while, <laughs> unintended. <laughs> uh, people have been going on about this. And, and it's like, um, basically, culture and, and music and live experience are are incredibly underrated by us, especially in the US and UK societies. We just don't, we don't recognize and appreciate the, what they hold up. You know, it's like the tip of the iceberg and there's a whole world that hangs off the back of it. And it's not just, it's not just jobs. And there's a lot more jobs than people are talking about there's there's and and it's and it's not just kind of gdp taxes and stuff like that it's it's also to do with really a well not more so but i think bit that people don't talk about is kind of identity uh kind of sense of um purpose and like like the reason why you know like we we at venue group talk a lot about this idea of third space, which was first introduced to me a couple of years, a couple of years ago by um, someone who we work with, and Phil. Um, and Phil, Phil said we basically brought brought this idea to the table. It's been around for a while, and you know your third space is is not where you live. That's your first space, and it's not where you work. It's your second space. It's your third space, and the third space is is really important to 
Um, it's, it's basically where you spend the third most amount of your time. And it's, it's different things to different people. Uh, to some people, it is the church. To some people, it's the pub. To some people, it's the football stadium. To some people, it is their local venue. But getting our third space right and protecting our third spaces gets us out of bed in the morning. It's like, what are you going to do with your disposable income if you're not going to get up at 3 a.m. and try and get a Glastonbury ticket? And what, you know, what do you do at the end of a long week at work other than going out to the pub with a few of your mates? And, you know, it all makes sense. Bizarrely, this third space thing makes sense of everything else. And we're trying to sort of protect and um, make sure that third space can come back strong. Because otherwise, I'm, I'm just like, I don't really understand what, what, what we're doing anything for gets very existential very quickly you're talking about the venue group there and and i guess music specifically with with yourself how have you you know your career in music is there anything that's been easily transferable to the venue group well collaborating is important you know i i kind of i take on this title at venue group of being a ceo but i definitely like to govern by committee which means that follow the best opinion and um, most informed opinion the the, the passion uh, so we we work well as a unit at venue group and and honestly that was a big part of of what made Mumford and Sons successful is that you know the four of us work well as friends and make decisions together and it's not just about sort of one person's best idea you end up getting a benefit not just kind of decision making but obviously creatively as well you're 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 putting a lot more inputs into the pot so i i learned a little bit about how to listen and uh, make give give space and and make room for you know whatever it might be a curveball a last minute you know change in plans or 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 you know maybe an unpopular opinion in the mix and sometimes you have to just not shut it down and, and work well as a as a unit so that that would be a big big part of it and then I guess sort of more practically speaking I was just really lucky to have toured as much as we have over the last uh, whatever it's been 13 years you know in the process of doing that got to meet uh, and have conversations with people who run venues and promote shows and I'm, I'm kind of ever fascinated basically I'm kind of a curious person I like to I like to take the extra half an hour to sit down with that uh, promoter in Berlin and pick their brains on what's going on in like the live scene in Germany at the moment. And it's, it's amazing. It's been like, a, you know, be this kind of a sponge uh, get, taking on all this information um, as we've been traveling around. Um, and how do you how do you kind of manage that time between the two? Because, I mean, Mumford and Sons in general would just be a very full on and a lot of a lot of different aspects of managing your time and then you've got the venue group part of it as well how do you manage your time between the two they kind of they, they actually in terms of a full day they dovetail really well so I'm normally I you know obviously at the moment there's nothing really to be done when it comes to Mumford and Sons beyond writing songs and I don't write songs unless I'm inspired or have like an idea so, you know, I don't just sit down and craft. I, I kind of wait for something to happen and then I'll write about it. So at the moment, it's very straightforward. I, most of my day is like a nine to five 
well, more like a sort of seven till eight working on venue group stuff. But normal, when we're touring and stuff, it works because I, I basically, I tend to sort of take it easy on the partying aspects of touring now. I used to kind of like going out after shows every night. And then obviously that just sort of takes its toll and you, you wake up later and later. But now I sort of finish a show that's like the high high point. And then I normally just, well, along with the rest of the guys, we just sort of decompress and then normally in bed by midnight. And then I'll get up at like eight or 9 a.m., can work until sound check, which is at 4 p.m., get up on stage, do a quick sound check for half an hour or an hour. And then I go and have some dinner, freshen up for the show. And that's a normal day in the life. And actually it's it's kind of, it keeps away any of the the boredom or or, some of the monotony of of touring that I know other artists struggle with sometimes is like that kind of hello Cleveland cliche of like what where am I what am I doing like I I, I very much use my brain um, for seven or eight hours a day you know remotely on a laptop and on my phone just trying to feed back and then, and then the other key thing is the reason that it works is I've got no problem delegating no, not micromanaging. So I, I trust people can do their job and, you know, they'll come to me with questions. So my job is more to answer things as they come up rather than be sort of watching over the back of everyone. You mentioned there with the, with the kind of the Hello Cleveland comment, I think there's a lot of bands that probably do have the same, same thing. Do you, do you get to see some of the cities that you've been to or is it a case of, you know, kind of, there and, and gone or do you get the time to uh, experience the city and what the city brings um to people it varies and and especially early days yes absolutely like we we were very adventurous but now kind of coming back to some of these cities for third fourth or more times i have learned the ones that i enjoy to kind of carve out some time and do certain things and then others you know i feel like i've maybe I've, I've maybe seen the bits that people go and see and I don't feel particularly like I need to just go for a wonder for the sake of it. I did, I did go through a small patch um, on the Wild of Mind tour, which is our last album um, before this one. And uh, so this is like 2015, I guess. I set myself the goal of running a 10K after soundcheck every day. And that I actually remember a lot of those runs. It was a lot of it was through the European leg of the tour. And it was it was actually a really fun way to spend an hour. And obviously it was good for the health and fitness side and mental health as well. But it was um, you know, that was that was a that was a good way to go and explore a little bit. That's an but amazing yeah. way to kind of like de- as you say, decompress and and just explore as well. I think a lot of musicians I've seen, they, they do love to kind of do the runs and specifically where I am in Melbourne, I know that you guys played at um, Sydney Mile Music Bowl and there, I mean, the run around uh, that area is pretty, pretty stunning. So um, I can only imagine other cities are the, are the same or similar. Totally. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. The musicians I speak to normally, obviously you've, as you said like it's been it's been a it's over 10 years now um that you've been with Mumford and Sons they normally speak about a lot of the songs that they they don't like playing because they've they've played it a thousand times and obviously I can imagine it gets um repetitive to a certain degree is there a song in particular that you that you're still fond of or you still have a little soft spot for (laughs) 
Uh, I thought you were going to ask that the other way around. I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy playing all of them, honestly. I don't get tired of it. I think that's partly because I um, do keep like other things going on in my life that I, I genuinely appreciate and cherish. Like I watched, um, we put this film out about um, seven years ago called The Big Easy Express, which told the story of us traveling across the US in vintage rail cars with Edward Sharp and Magnetic Zeros and Okra Medicine Show. And it was an amazing tour. And we made a movie about it, put it out, did really well, but then I never watched it again. I mean, I, I don't think that's weird, but I did watch it last week. And I was like, you know, that's just fun. Like I just, I still, you know, I'd go out on stage at Sydney Meyer and just be like, each song I'm, I'm just like, this is great. Like it's more, the song is like a vehicle to communicate with the people that are appreciating it and you're appreciating it almost through their eyes. Then I'm not like, I'm never just sort of shoegazing, waiting for the song to be over. Like it's all about being present and being like with, it's like every night is completely different. The songs are completely different because the crowd's different. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I never take it for granted. Not it's for the perfect way to be. It really is that that present moment. I think most people um, probably could live with being like that and and just enjoying that present moment. I guess we're talking about a few other venues there. What what's some of the best venues that that stick in your mind? I think most of them are normally crowd based, where you, or you get a feeling. But is there some some of the venues that you can think of off the top of your head that um, have been some of the best ones that you've worked at? Yeah, there's been some good ones. I mean, we did this this sort of level of touring that we were doing a few years in that was uh, the kind of the theatre level. You get to really appreciate um, some really soulful and special rooms. You're talking about, you know, the Ryman in Nashville, or you're talking about, I don't know, Hammersmith Apollo or... I was going to say the Apollo in New York as well, but that's, we didn't do that until a bit later, but I would put it in the same thing. The Seattle, the Paramount Seattle, there's all the Fox in Atlanta. There's like a bunch of venues at that kind of two to 5,000 capacity that are very special in the way that they were built for that. And then, and then above that, you, there are still music venues. There's a lot of multi-purpose venues you know, like arenas are fun, but they're, they're not, you don't feel like they're fit. They're not built for purpose. I guess of the bigger places, there's a, there's a great, great venue in Berlin called Waldbühne, uh, which is a crazy uh, amphitheater. Red Rocks, you know, is as good as people say it is. Um, the Gorge in um, Washington state. These are, these are some, these are some of the ones. And then, and then in 2013, we um, were invited to come and reopen a, a, a tennis stadium in New York called Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. And we took a bit of a gamble because it hadn't been open for 40 years. And when I went and had a look at it five months before we were agreeing to play, it was falling down, um, like in complete state of disrepair. But we, we decided to take a, a punt on it with a long time friend and producer called, called Mike Luber. And that, that venue is now humming. It's doing like 16 to 20 shows a year. 
which is the number that the tennis club will allow, but it's, it's brought it all the way back to its former glory of the 50s and 60s. It was where they used to have the uh, US Open tennis, actually. It's also where Dylan first played a headline show after going electric at Newport. It was where the Beatles played their second ever show after Ed Sullivan in America. So it has this amazing heritage to it. And um, the crazy thing about that place is it's 13, I think 13 and a half thousand people, but you can see the whites of the eyes of everyone because it was built for tennis. Like mm. the, the actual room was built, uh, or the, not the room, it's an open air amphitheater, but it's, it's built to be able to track a tennis ball from years ago before there was any sort of screens with Hawkeye and all that sort of stuff. Just so, you know, that, that, was, that was cool. I, I, I enjoy those sorts of spaces. It's fun being outdoors um, when you can be for shows. Uh, what career path do you think you would have taken if it wasn't music? Did you, did you grow up in a musical household? Was there kind of encouragement of that? No, no, not really. Uh, my grandmother's sister played piano and that was about as close as I got to a musical family. So I didn't, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, I was, I was one of um, four kids. I was the youngest. So to music ended up being my rebellion and my way of like cutting through uh, a bunch of overachieving siblings that, that was like my niche. So I, so it, it kind of, it came about because of that. But there was a time in my teens that I genuinely thought I was going to be an astrophysicist. And I think that had it not been for a, ultimately a good decision to, to dedicate my life to music, I, I probably would have gone and, you know, got my degree in um, astrophysics and basically just gazed at the stars and tried to figure out how the planet you know, came to be. There's still time, still time yet. Ben. Um, what, um, what would you say? I mean, we've we've spoken about the venues, and obviously with with you working in the venues, and obviously being in so many venues with with the music. What would you say um, is the best part of of events and music in particular? Is it the camaraderie or the deep and joint feeling of masochism, or <laughs> what do you think it is? <laughs> the best thing about it uh, is probably being understood. You know, it's 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 one of our whether we know it or not, it's one of our greatest hopes in life is to be understood. And music, whether it's a lyric or whether it's just a general sense that you have found your tribe, whatever it is, that sense that you're you're understood is is really special. And it's felt also from the musician's point of view because you can be as honest as you want and you can put something out there that could be something that you may be too embarrassed to even talk to your parents about and put it into a song and then have thousands of people sing it back and it makes you feel understood and that is, it's all right, you know. Right. Um, so I think that's it. I think it's probably just that sense of that and, and, and belonging and what an amazing thing that, exists and it's been there through our entire existence as human beings around campfires in churches um all the way through to you know football matches with chanting and like there's there's so many versions of uh communal sharing of melody and and lyric it's uh, awesome I, you talking about football um there it's it, it's hard to even imagine 
anything outside of your life other than the two things that you've got going. But have you got any hobbies that you love doing outside of the music and, and your other projects that you've got? Have you got sports or binge watching that you love to do? Binge watching, yeah. I mean, what a year for it. Uh, I've definitely been doing some in the in the evenings and enjoyed enjoyed all sorts. I'm amazed there's still stuff to watch uh, <laughs> given everything's been shut down. But I don't know. I think I, I'm a big fan of uh, anything water based. So uh, I love um, I love sailing. I love being um, at the beach. I love being fishing at the lake. Uh, I'm I'm just a a, a water baby. Um, so. I don't get to do those things as much as I would like, but I do it more than most. So um, yeah, I'd say those are probably the, the route into my hobbies. Um, but no, there isn't like a, a huge ton of time. I've got a dog, uh, love my dog, miss my dog when I'm on tour. Um, what dog have you got? He's a, he's, he's a Labradoodle. Uh, yeah, nice. a, a bit of a controversial dog to some people, <laughs> but um uh, he is my best friend and I look after him uh, very well. So, yeah. Um, yeah. What, uh, I guess, obviously, as you said there, we've all had the kind of little bit of time to to kind of process or watch or do different things that we, we had on the back burner. Have you got, have you had time to kind of look at new music and what kind of music are you listening to at the moment? Yeah, I do a bit. I get a bit torn about that because, and I think this has been the case for a lot of people in 2020, the, the listening habits have been, quite skewed this year towards people listening to stuff that they know because there's been so much uncertainty and if you look you know I was hearing it kind of anecdotally from someone who knows a lot about this stuff but I'm sure it would be discoverable and in, in some sort of an article but you know it's it's been the vast majority of listening in 2020 has been catalogued and people going back to stuff. So that, that's honestly been the same for me this year. I've, I've listened to some stuff that's brand new. Um, I'm trying to think on the fly if there's anything that's worth, you know, that's brand, brand new, I, I struggle with. There's, there's one artist that my mind goes to that I would recommend to people if they haven't heard him before. And that's a guy called Kevin Garrett, um, who's a fantastic musician out of Pittsburgh. Uh, Pennsylvania and he we've we've known each other a few years now but um, I think he's so underrated and so unrecognized for his talent and he does sort of R&B a lot of piano vocal solo stuff but he also has like full produced up versions of songs and um, yeah Kevin Garrett he's uh, he's an exciting you know relatively new artist that people should be on top of. Um, coming to the end of the, the episode now, uh, just the uh, the last kind of question that I had was, and I'm sure a lot of people um, would love to know as well, is is there anyone in music that you, or dead or alive, that you would love to perform with? Um, is there anyone kind of on the top of your list that you would love to perform with? Well, we've had a crazy, crazy lot. I mean, I, I can't believe the list that, you know, that, that, that list would have been very long. 10 years ago and it's been a bizarre run you know I've like made record with like Ray Davies and been on stage with Springsteen and and Neil Young and you know I'm not not to brag but it's just like these are the artists that I would have easily jumped to with that you know I guess we had, we had a bit of a hope the night that Prince died we were actually in Minneapolis performing at the the local arena there and 
we had heard word that um, the, the day before he died, that um, he had hoped to make it down to our show. And we were looking, well, we were hoping to invite him um, to come and join us on stage that night. It was a very bizarre 24 hours uh, learning of his death and, and you know, definitely stolen from the world. Um, probably the most talented musician who has lived in my lifetime. I think, you know, just the guy is, a, he was, he was such a, such a bottomless fountain of talent. So I, I just, yeah, I guess that would have been, to have been able to like have done that would have been great. And I, I have friends who, who had the opportunity because he was a very collaborative musician, but no, I ne never got the opportunity to. So. I mean, that yeah. would have been great. Just seeing you guys on, on stage and, you know, even the thought Mumford and Sons and, and Prince collaborating, uh, what a, what a, crazy um music we would have come up with would have been would have been amazing but um ben it was great speaking to you um thank you very yeah. much for taking the time and um good luck um in all of the ventures and hopefully we get back to to seeing you on stage um and seeing the, the company back up um managing venue soon i hope so yeah absolutely all right well thanks for having me on thanks ben all right cheers thank Take you care. bye